From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I am Sir Elliot Sang. I am a content creator and a contributor at Central Sauce. With me, I have the venerable Mickey Hellerbatch, who is a writer at Central Sauce as well as other places and the host of Fifth Element Radio Show 92 Till. Mickey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's Hellerback, even though it's spelled with a CH, but that's that's cool. This is the first time you've pronounced it wrong, uh, and you've done it right every single other time, so you're all good. I don't I'm gonna be <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm gonna be hundred percent honest. I don't know that I really know what the word venerable means, but I'm hoping it's good. Well, we venerate you, Mickey. We venerate you so well I that fe- we... I feel, <laughs> I feel venerated. We venerate you to such a degree that we pronounce your name differently each time here at In Search of Sauce. Um, in this episode, we uh, also have a great co-host in Tyler, who is back after a little bit. Uh, Tyler, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm back doing my poetry, listening to lots of music, which we can get into later. Um, Excellent. So, so what's good? Excellent. Yeah. Tyler is a creator of the, of the Seasoned Sauce playlist and a writer for Revolt's A to Z webcomic. We've got a few pieces today. We've got a piece about PJ Morton, the New, the New Orleans musician. We've got a piece about Heba Kadri, a mastering superstar. And we also have a piece about Will Smith, which is actually my piece. And we're going to start with it since we'll start on a sort of a hip hop note and a current events note ish so my piece is actually a video essay by todd in the shadows who has been a very prominent youtuber for some years now making different types of music review essays documentary types of things he has a series called train records great pun which he uses to analyze and do retrospectives on albums in significant music careers that sort of represented a very sort of disastrous turning point or a bizarre turning point in otherwise well-known careers. So you have artists like Katy Perry with one of her recent albums that got analyzed on Train Records. You had a Madonna album that got analyzed. It's a really great series. Today, we are talking about his most recent one, which came out on April 25th, and it's about Will Smith's Lost and Found. Now, some of you guys might know this record. When I was growing up, Will Smith's Switch was a song that actually meant something to me, which I'm aware is something that not many people can say. <laughs> it was an album that I never listened to, but it was a period of time in which, yes, Will Smith was emerging as this acting star. This was around the time that Hitch was one of the big movies. And Switch, which Todd in the Shadows funnily Jokes is probably a song that was supposed to be called Hitch or supposed to be on the Hitch soundtrack and then just for copyright reasons wasn't. Um, ended up being a top 10 hit, number 7 on the US Billboard Hot 100 in 2005 and was kind of a popular song but has really died out since then. And that's kind of something that speaks a lot to the legacy of Lost and Found, which is Will Smith's final album it was his fourth album which he released in 2005 and it's an album where there's so many things that are happening that are quite bizarre it's very introspective in a way it's an album where there's a lot of 
for better or worse, commentary on the state of things and commentary about his feelings about people's perceptions of him and particularly their feelings on him being this nice guy, being this person with this clean image, taking advantage of his kindness or perhaps not giving him the respect he felt he deserved. And these themes are kind of relevant when we talk about Will Smith these days because of what happened, I guess, a month ago or seven years ago, who knows at this point. And Will Smith's career in the time span, the time span since then has been under a lot of discussion. Um, so I, from there, I'm going to turn it to my venerable co-hosts, um, <laughs> Mickey Hallerbatch and my honorable co-host, Tyler. Um, I'll start with Mickey. What were your thoughts when you watched this video essay and in general about this sort of time period of Will Smith's music career? Um, I mean, <laughs> well, I... I don't think you quite mentioned so blatantly the kind of setup, which is obviously the thing that, that needs to be mentioned about this video is like putting the slap in context, uh, which is kind of like the big opening thing uh, that Todd goes through. And he even he very cleverly and, and importantly is like, I know we don't need to talk about this. I know we don't need to talk about this. I know we don't need to talk about this. But if we're going to say anything about this and the kind of cool thing and why it's cool, you're bringing it to the podcast, I think, is it's like we're t- we've talked about this every which sort of way, but like not with actual like context that leads to this moment and not with any analysis that is through art like through the music itself and from like a forgotten kind of album that no one really tapped into because honestly, as he like reveals over the course of the video, it was just so terrible. Um, so that was like, a th- I just thought it was really like, a, I know you probably don't want to hear, it was just a really clever way of doing, it. I know you probably don't want to hear about this, but if we're going to talk about it this way, would you be interested? And then kind of slowly leading into it. Um, I just, I thought it was like, could because it became, much less about that but that slap it's it was good to give it that context um and it's just like it's just a a great kind of clever piece of journalism in that kind of like reveal into the thing you really care about talking about um and i feel like there's been a lot of talk about like headlines and things and like doing tactful things that feel a little like clickbaity in one way or another but there's like a difference between something that's clickbait and like a tactful headline and that's kind of his videoed version of that tactful headline which i thought was really cool personally right right i I am totally with you on that tyler what were your thoughts were you on a similar sort of note just in general or were there some things that you pulled from it um that mickey didn't really cover despite how venerable he is. Here's the, he gonna, you're going to make that man go to the freaking uh, Oxford. <laughs> um, but no, it's like I am kind of on the same page. And I would say what was kind of like a blessing that from some behind-the-scenes stuff you guys will never know about, I had some more time to look at this guy's videos. Um, so I ended up watching the Katy Perry video. And something that I found that he did in the Katy Perry video and the Will Smith video is... He, it's while he is, for lack of a better word, shitting on these albums, he tries to make sure that these albums still very much so humanize the artist. Because um, once again, he was like, we're not going to talk about this, but, ah, this, but, but that angle, he makes sure at the end, while he's essentially like attacking or more so criticizing, because it, was, it is more critique, or, or critique in a more humorous way at times, of the album, the music, and the lyrics and content, 
he's still brought about at the end to be like, hey, if you're going to ever, if for a guy that was never that personal at that time, this was the thing that helped him become more personal, whether if it was done through a bad lens or not, whether if you think the music is bad, maybe we should get more of that from Will Smith. If he ever does make music again, this is maybe more so the route that he should go. I thought it would offered an insight that, frankly, I never thought about. And and I never, here's the thing, I never listen to that album. I ain't gonna listen to that album. I think I heard enough through, <laughs> through the video. But I do also remember Switch and how, like, you have the party single to, like, the more scathing, if you can even use scathing, I guess it was, like, scathing in terms of, like, Will Smith level, in terms of lyrics, <laughs> about people and how he felt about things. So to bring almost, like, that balance of, like, Bad music, but like honestly, as a person, they were also going through this, or here's what they're going through now. I think was a really nice angle to bring. Yeah, that's it's a very strong point as well in terms of the empathy that is often missed when it comes to critique of music and critique of public figures. And we can talk, we can talk all we want about how you know a lot of times incisiveness and sometimes harshness is needed, and a lot of these people, you know, who are very privileged and very rich do need that kind of wake-up call of people really calling them for who they are, da-da-da. But in this case, it is a person who has clearly been through a lot. That wasn't really covered in the video um, through, you know, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but this is a situation where some humanity is needed. And I think with, there's so many there's so many things that can be talked about with regards to this video. But before we move on, I am interested to hear what you guys' thoughts are in terms of Will Smith's historical sort of like place within hip hop. Uh, we do talk about hip hop a lot with Central Sauce, <laughs> and I think yeah, you know, like it's a it's a topic that I want to speak about through this lens in the sense of when you watch this video, there's a lot of retrospective about how his career goes on and the different sort of narratives that he painted about himself, uh, being this clean rapper, being this rapper who didn't need to talk about you know doing this in the streets and da da da. And didn't use vulgarities, and then the Eminem line <laughs> that very famously kind of changed things in a lot of ways. For you guys, though, now that we've had so much time since then, and since that period of time where Will Smith had that sort of hip-hop fall from grace and then rise to prominence in the acting world, and now it's almost fall from grace in the acting world for a moment with the slap and all the conversations we don't want to have about it because we're tired. Um, what do you guys think now, looking back on Will Smith's career, that, you know, his career, like, what is his hip-hop sort of legacy um, in now? Like, for instance, if he were to rap now, do you feel like it would be a move that some people might, like, be interested in? That we feel like there's things that he that his records have done that people should go back and check on? Yeah, I I definitely, I think actually the the video did a good job of kind of outlining this actually as, as something I had written down that jumped out at me is the kind of, the, the semi-thesis statement of like, he was perfect for that late 90s shiny suit era. Like he made something in that context and then he actually could have fit into the like, I like the way you move black eyed peas kind of era of that like pop rap kind of thing, but he chose not to and that kind of like ended his thing. Do I think his style or ability or like 
taste level of how he puts shit together like can fit in any way in the modern context of hip hop and be like legitimate that people care about or want to listen to not at all and I think that that was really like outlined in that video but also like his legacy is like a few really insanely good songs of like get jiggy with it and welcome to Miami that like totally fit in that style like it really like fit in that era and it was like you know what no matter what you say he has those songs that was like you can say whatever you want about will smith we're not gonna act like we weren't like going off to those in the party like no one can kind of say that and then summertime and like the fresh prince intro like leading that into that is is a legendary kind of hip-hop moment and crossing over the two mediums of like you know television and hip-hop and it like has has some legitimacy to it and no one can deny his like legacy with jazzy jeff like it's not so he still has like a legitimate legacy, but as far as like, can that translate at all or should it ever translate at all to now? No. And then, you know, with uh. this video, kind of like any version of uh, like him going into the like deep, intense, like braggadocio male ego side of like hard hip hop was like, and I, I'll coin this phrase now, which I use a lot in like conversations with homies, but he's like, he did like the TJ Maxx version of what that is like it's just not like he can't actually compete with what the like the real solid version of that thing is and it would be the same version of that kind of thing if he tried to make some version of what we're hearing now all right so it's funny i'm actually on the opposite end of this um Mm. because almost to like rebuttal make you his last statement tj max got some hitters bro (laughs) tj max be having some (laughs) tj max be having some fonds in it but like I think yeah, no, he already had them though. That's the whole thing. Is it's Miami and getting jiggy with it. Those were his the TJ Maxx finds that you when you go through the shirts like all the way through the thing all the way you're like oh this one T-shirt that's actually kind of hard. That's it and it's over. But it's like you can still find so so the way I found it right is like what he was saying. I was like he kind of could. It's in a weird way he could because of acts like Nas, because of Jay Z, because of certain albums. Now here's there there are two clear paths he would have to go with right. If Will Smith was to go back and rap, here's the thing. I'm not saying I want to see this. I'm not saying I want to see this at all. But I am saying there is a path. He could either go with like that 4-4-4 route. Would he have the, does he have the capacity or capability to do so? Maybe not. Who knows? But I'm. But because we uh, all see, definitely not. Here's the thing. We never know. We're the, He's we, not Jay Z. Not Mickey. Like just disrespecting Will Smith again, as we were saying. <laughs> let's not disrespect Will, Will Smith. <laughs> but, but like no 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 no. But all jokes aside, um, it's like he could have that. Or because of the, the what's his name, to, to discuss Will Smith's place in hip-hop, because he was the fun, happy guy, there, there are tons of, like, fun, happy guys in rap right now who may not have, like, the quote-unquote albums. Once again, not everybody is an album artist. They can be singles. Chance, for example, world for time, for time, we don't have to get into the big day, was, like, the happy rap guy. You had acts like Kyle as well, who I'm a fan of. Um, who are able kind of stay in that happy rap pop rap lane? Would now now so we want to hear that from like a fifty something year old Will Smith? Probably not. But at the same time, well, it's like it's. But I'm saying you do have those options. Is it good? I think it's good. I think both of you have some strong points here. I mean, Tyler, you, you know, you you mentioned Kyle and stuff like that, and, and there are there are these artists that have this sort of jovial energy, but I don't even know if that's the direction because those artists are a bit abstract. And, and, and sort of lyrically uh, sort of strong in certain ways that Will Smith probably isn't going to nah, be able to. Probably like, not. You know, once, once again, I'm not saying that he should or like that he is good. I'm just saying there were but there's, there's but there's. I will say this and then we can move on. Um, 
for one, like, there's no reason he can't be Pitbull. I will say that. Like, if Pitbull exactly. can be Pitbull and Flo Rida can be Flo Rida, then Will Smith can hop on a, like, dance track, a pop rap track, and just make something, right? But I also think there's one thing, and if this, if there's a, a failing of the video that Todd does, it's it's probably this because it doesn't. It's sort of touched on towards the end, but it's not really delved into the way I would love for it to have been. Will Smith started in the '80s, right? And and Will Smith's beginnings are as part of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, and that era of his career is one that I think people overlook quite a bit. It's interesting that actually Dead in Hip Hop, um, who I have watched for a, a while, did like some interesting sort of retrospective coverage. I think only on their Patreon about that period, that that particular album, and how like much fun it brings listening to it again. The thing about that era of Will Smith is, at that time, right, in 1988, Will Smith is a lyrically forward rapper like he's a guy who is extremely skilled for that particular yeah i mean but also for that particular style because you're talking about six minute five minute records djs cutting break beats you know you're talking about not just rapping but like storytelling right telling a funny silly story you're talking about onomatopoeia and things like that i think that there's a very interesting connection will smith has to the roots of hip-hop and the roots of the sort of party the wholesome time the storytelling the djing that he could probably tap into now in a really cool way especially since that like jazzy jeff is still killing it doing his things like doing his sets where he can like because he's still a legend so for him to be able you know if there's a way for him to go that could possibly satisfy both routes it would be finding a way to tap into the the real old school origins of what's part of him i think a lot of the difficulty with him is that stepping into the 90s you know he fit well into that pop rap shiny suit sound but it wasn't really him fully and i think obviously as the time progressed into the 2000s it definitely became more and more of a detachment but i think part of what artists struggle with is sort of really tapping into as they get more popular and more debate surrounds them and as time passes really remaining themselves even if it's not something that's current even if it's something that can draw criticism and i think especially with how valuable the origins of sort of east coast 80s hip-hop and, and all those classic records are like there's there's no reason that that can't still have a place now But on the, on the note of talking about sort of origins and talking about maybe regionality and things like that within music in the United States, I think it's a good time to talk about the P.J. Morton article um, because there's also a lot of history that gets discussed in terms of New Orleans and jazz. There's a, a very much a current event sort of thing talked about in terms of the Grammys and in terms of John Batiste's recent winning of the Best Album Award at the Grammys. So I'm going to now turn it over to Tyler to talk about this article from OK Player. Uh, Tyler, let us know what your thoughts are. Um, well, this piece was called PJ Morton's Watch the Sun is a Full Circle Moment, written by Jelani Turner Williams. Um, I'm always like whenever we can do these podcasts, I always try to find an article that either is an interview or a profile of someone I'm listening to right now because they recently dropped. And PJ Morton is one of those people. Um, I've really enjoyed his last record, Paul. Um, 
And I wonder, like, I was like, oh, watch the sun. I've, I've heard the record. It's a nice, about 34, like 32, 35 minute record. And I was like, God, I enjoyed this. And I wanted to do more, more backstory on it. And I think what Jelani um, does is, I always talk about a lot how like interviews have to be one of two ways, right? Or not, or not one of two ways, but like how they usually take a, um, they usually take one of these routes, right? Where like they are almost having a pull a full on conversation that they're that they've really crafted their questions into making sure they get to those answers that they want out of the artist, or B, that's more so it's very minimalist and they almost let the artist really do most of the talking and almost let them have the space to breathe and talk whatever um, about whatever it, it may be. And I think they do a great job at that. Uh, it's one of those pieces where like each question is like one or two sentences, maybe response every now and then. But it really is letting Morton really discuss like how I came to be with this album, where I am, and how in, in New Orleans inf uh, influenced this record, which essentially has been doing since Gumbo. Because um, they, he almost retired with Gumbo back in 2017, and even described this whole entire five-year run as a moment of him like really ex embracing New Orleans, doing it independently, and now also bringing artists with him that he signed his protege JoJo, and now a new—not uh, necessarily new, but a female girl group Jackson Avenue—to prominence. So it's this. I saw this piece as something as an evolution for him, as and also a closing in a certain chapter for him as well. And I think that the uh, Jelani really let him speak his piece on where he was, how he was, and how even gives us a glimpse into the future. Um, and with that, I pass this on to you guys. What did you think of the article more so, and what do you think of the content of what um, Morton said? Mickey, we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, I thought it was a really um, well thought out sequencing of, of questions for Morton that, that dived into some really intriguing kind of themes uh, laid out. And I think uh, the first one that kind of really caught my attention was how she uh, got him into talking about the laptop crash, which is mentioned early on, and how that kind of combined with the pandemic uh, fueled what felt like sort of a new era of his work. I thought that was really, really a, a, a very compelling section that felt, you know, it was a way to lead the reader in, in the kind of relatability of taking a new kind of lease on life through the experience that we've all communally had. Um, and then it also then kind of very naturally and organically blended into the context as we've been talking about a little bit of new orleans uh roots in pj morton's music and how that kind of at least for me what really hit me about that was like if there are two things that the pandemic taught me it was like okay take take a second look at where your life is and um i mean i moved back to baltimore where i'm from for the pandemic and i think that was a big thing for a lot of people but kind of like really assessing the the ideology behind where home is um and i think uh she did a really good job of kind of framing that for him and he really delivered a lot of interesting um ideologies and kind of intertwinings of that into into the music that he's just released so yeah i, I was really compelled by that part 
Right. I think one thing that really stands out about this interview is definitely the element of locality and of New Orleans and of origins, right? There's an interesting anecdote that I can't help but constantly read over where they're talking about gospel. He's working on a gospel album, he says, and Jelani asks how important it is for black artists to familiarize themselves with church music. And PJ says he feels that that's the root of everything and notes how artists like Al Green and Marvin Gaye and Sam Cooke and Donny Hathaway all have that background of the church, of the black church in America being a great part of what they you know what influences their music and they talk about the essence of singers developed in church choirs which is a conversation that happens a lot in terms of like the difference in singing and the difference of of not just vocal approach but just approach to singing almost spiritually that r&b singers and singers in general have now being quite detached from that same feeling and that same approach spiritually that artists had when they were coming from that church background and I think that these are the kinds of things that artists have to draw on and to think about when it comes to their own music and what writers have to think about when it comes to what we cover. I mean, Nikki, you talked about going back to Baltimore. Um, I think part of what inspires us in terms of the, the music we write about is the stories we grew up around and the people we grew up around and the environment that we grew up in. Even if we are so fascinated by global things, by things from everywhere, there is a reality we have to ground ourselves in that ultimately we, our homes and our backgrounds make up so much of who we are. And so when it comes to the things that we choose to write about, whether it's about specific types of music or specific things we do with our prose, we always have to kind of draw back to like, what's that thing that six-year-old me or that my environment or people in my school or people like my in my family like what's that natural thing to me and you know I transitioned to there too from the Will Smith article because I think that that's a great part of what troubles so many artists when when artists receive a great amount of attention from an early age and are constantly drawn into the entertainment business which is a business first and foremost and they're constantly drawn into public debate and terminally online people saying things all the time it's very difficult to stay grounded in something that feels natural to you and to constantly continue to pursue this learning about yourself and this learning about your own origins and so oftentimes when we think about the the albums that we think are bad and the music that we think is bad it comes from that place of feeling an inauthenticity like that idea of cringe is very much that idea of like dude that's not you like why are you trying to sound like this it's so obvious to everybody else except the artists that they're tapping into something that's not them And I think what's so beautiful about the New Orleans musical tradition in America, um, as we sort of come close to closing out on this article, I think what's so beautiful about what what they're discussing in terms of PJ and Jelani in this this interview is that there's this place where New Orleans music has both sort of become mainstream or become this accessible and profitable venture in a lot of ways as part of the music business, has found its way into the music business uh, and into popularity and gotten to the big stage with what John Batiste just did. But at the same time, it's all still very like, this is New Orleans, like this is the New Orleans sound, this is how New Orleans jazz, this is bounce, right? These are the things that we keep in the music. And when you listen to artists from Louisiana to this day, whether they're from New Orleans, whether they're from Baton Rouge, like Youngboy, like you hear it. 
right? Like you hear it when you listen to Nevada by Youngboy, when you listen to any like Lil Wayne album, like any of the Carter records, you hear that New Orleans and that Louisiana Baton Rouge, like you hear they, they're, they're very much still grounded and inspired by where they're from. When you listen to music from particular parts of Mexico, it's very different from other parts of Mexico, right? Because it's locality more so than it is genre. It's locality and it's the natural experience of who you are more so than it is like do do this type of music with this type of sound, you know, and so much of locality in our, our local stories and our family stories will tell us exactly where we kind of need to go. Um, I think that that's a kind of a beautiful thing I draw from this. Is there anything we should talk about before we move on or should we move on? Uh, I would say actually there's there's a, there's a few things well with this piece, actually. Um... Yeah. Not, uh, once again, not to be long. Um, but when it comes to like New Orleans, I, I, here's the thing: the whole entire thing with the gospel music thing, right? Um, that's a whole different can of worms, I think, because I think that's an evolution of R and B. R and B doesn't necessarily have to um, stay in those. I understand like having to stay in roots to even understand and make a genre. Um, and I'm not necessarily dis- disagreeing with a Morton, um, but I do think it's. I think it's like it sees how he's almost like a traditionalist in a way as well. It gives an insight into who he is as a person, how he views his music, and how he, how he certainly um, views R&B. Because the evolution of R&B, you can argue, is very different because it is a very hot, hot debated topic of like how artists see um, <clears throat> how they should sing or, how, um, how, or what the soul comes from. Soul can come from multiple things. R&B artists don't necessarily have to be raised in the church to make said music. Yeah, um, I, I and I think Elliot, you were touching on it too. I think the the kind of crossover um, and what I found really compelling is you know how things leaked into one another, and then the crossover of that locality into spirituality, and then how they all kind of are all encompassing within the craft itself. I think is uh, is really interesting. And then uh, I just wanted to mention one more thing about the piece that I really liked, uh, which is towards the end she kind of leaned into the light. I like when interviewers talk to to musicians about just kind of nerdy music take stuff about like what their favorite Nas, what his favorite Nas album was. Like I really enjoyed when I interviewed Thundercat talking to him about Tales from the Tour Bus. And I think that that's like, it's always like a good thing if you can fit it in within the context of, you know, she, she really like started in this one place of like, what was the flip moment for you? How can we expand on it into your locality and your spirituality and the music? And then it's like, yeah, but also like, what's your favorite Nas album? I think it's like, you know, since we've gotten this broad picture, let me also like ask you the music nerd question, which I think um, really kind of rounds out interviews. And I thought that was really cool. They're a very smart writer, and I, I liked how they sequenced everything and what they're able to let, once again, let the artist speak. and But also asking the right questions to like, get the answers they needed. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I'm glad that you guys were able to point that out. Uh, and to be clear, like it's not even like I definitely when I speak about those those ideas of, of locality and like authenticity and things like that it's definitely not a linear thing it's definitely not a thing of like oh it definitely has to be this particular style sound or thing for it to be legitimate and it would be a problem if it weren't um but i i'm always fascinated by how artists draw upon their personal experiences and what they're grounded in Um, 
And there's some interesting conversations with regards to that with uh, this pitchfork piece, which was brought in by Mickey. Um, it's about Heba Kadri, and she is a mastering engineer and mixing engineer uh, based in Brooklyn who has been working on so many huge albums of the past two years, several years, with regards to the indie music landscape. Um, so, Mickey, give us your sort of thoughts on this piece and why you brought it to the table. Yeah, uh, so again, the piece is Meet Heba Kadri. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Mastering Engineer to the Indie Stars. It's by, again, I hope I'm pronouncing this author's name right and this journalist's name right, Allison Hussey for Pitchfork. Um, this is really another version of the thing that I often do on this podcast of Mickey bringing a piece he wishes he would have put together. Yep. Uh, <laughs> from an interesting kind of like behind the scenes person in music. Um, it's an interview that's expertly prepared and executed uh, from a voice in music and an engineer uh, that's behind the scenes, but more specifically someone who mainly focuses on mastering and gives real insight into the difference between mixing and mastering and what the individual of importance of each of those things is, which I thought was really cool and something that I don't remember having read about being... Um, I think this this piece doesn't fall into the trap when talking about something like this that could make it overly technical and talks about mastering in the context of real what feels like more heart centered artistry, if that makes sense. Um, and I thought that was really mm -hmm. compelling um, through the interview. You also get a really well discussed understanding of Kadri's range and purpose within the craft. There's a lot of phrases perfectly placed throughout the intro before we get even to the conversation, which do a really good job of giving you a sense of the vibe of Kadri's work. Some examples I found are therapist and translator, problem solver, highly skilled technician, sonic cohesion and curator designing the layout of an art show. And honestly, more than I can even say, if you continually go throughout the piece, I think uh, a lot of these phrases really give you a, a holistic context of who Kadri is as an artist. Um, the overarching thing that uh, this piece struck with me, though, is a thing I've been coming to an understanding of the older I get. I guess the people who I thought, you know, when I was younger, I, I would have and did have real respect for were really the people who you would categorize as like legendary or culturally impactful. But as I'm not to say these people aren't culturally impactful, but not in the like mainstream context of that of like, you know, this person is out here doing this, they're Beyonce kind of thing. Um, but as I'm getting older, the that reality is kind of shifted for me where I end up having a more like intriguing level of respect for the more hidden voices or humans who craft specifically intra interesting individual lives and careers for themselves and find purpose through filling a unique space and searching for kind of um, the loopholes to really finesse their existence, if that makes sense. Uh, Kadri, I think, and it's really explored well in this piece, is kind of the, the culmination of this idea. And I think Hazi does a really great job at uh, highlighting it to its full level, but also at the same time, I think, and this is just a very technical journalism thing, which we'll close on before I open it up. Um, the intro while having little bits of quotes is a little extended. And then there's only a few questions in the actual back and forth. And the piece end up actually feeling when you read it 
really condensed but in a, a a tactful way i think i think once you're done with the piece you're like oh yeah like i don't feel like i had to read that too long but i got this really again to use the same word over again i guess holistic view of this you know artist and um yeah i you know it's <laughs> and i talked about this a lot when i've interviewed and talked about producers but uh it really kind of started with like a mission statement of we should view mastering engineers as as much artists as we view vocalists um i think that was like really proven throughout the piece uh tyler why don't we start with you um what were some things that jumped out to you about you know maybe anything kadri had to say or the piece in general um first of all i also want to say yeah, Allison did a bang up job on this piece. Like, I, I, it's it's absolutely great. I, I always like, I always when I find like a really good interview, I'm like, God, I wish I was this good. Um, <laughs> but no, for real. Um, Allison does a great job of making someone who has who has a very technical job make them seem so. I mean, and as they are human, because um, mastering to like let's say to writers or matter of fact, a person but doesn't may not even know music that well. Mastering and engineering seems like such a technical out there job that doesn't like they're like, oh, it's like they're they help with that post production, but they're not really involved with the music. And like, no, it's like they are in just as involved if not of changing the music, if not changing the sound, the landscape, how you and definitely how you hear it. Um and how Kadri has like that attention to detail as well. She also is similar to like the what um Allison does, making the technical master human. That seems like that's Kadri's pro, uh, approach to the music making process as well. She's literally at the, the ending quote of the article was people first and foremost. And she has to work with a whole bunch of artists who are essentially like introverts. <laughs> she's like, how he's like, how am I going to pull this out of them so I can really see what they want from their from this art? And it all starts for her like this, like this interview itself as a conversation. And that and just and and how sometimes it will fail. It's and she's and almost like finding that comfortability with failure to like get to the ultimate product, not even product, the feeling, the that they were that the artist is trying to convey through whatever album they're that she's mastering or engineering for, right? Um, and the one, like little tidbit, I was like, I didn't know she did Japanese Breakfast. I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> I was like, I love that record. <laughs> yeah, I. You guys are nailing it too. I think one of the standout things that um, that Hussey really nails about this particular piece is that you come away from it thinking like, God, I want to work with this person, right? Like, especially yeah. if you're an artist <laughs> or if you can just picture yourself being an artist. Like if you're one of those folks that's just like, yeah, I don't really want to be a musician, but it'd be cool. You would think, well, if I were to be a musician, this would be my engineer. Like I need this motherfucker because I'm going to go there with my album and this person's not just going to to make it theirs. They're not, you know, Eva's not going to take an album according to her, by her own accord and and try to, you know, sort of overhaul it so that it fits a, an idea that she wants. She's constantly searching for what the human behind the art is trying to convey, but also who they are in general, and constantly allowing for things that are natural and things that are human to come out, and then just adding the flourishes and the technical aspects to make sure that it, it's it's conveyable and it's accessible to a particular wider audience. And I think that that part is so fascinating about music is that there's, there's this constant 
combination of like what do you take out and what do you keep what do you leave in that it's authentic and that's raw and that's human about this and then what do you what do you smooth what do you finesse what do you make shiny and somebody like Heba and the many different great mixing engineers and mastering engineers that do not get enough credit and that are absolutely artists as Mickey said um, is that they are constantly walking that line ultimately that question comes down to them because they're the ones who are essentially the the last end producers they're the editors they're the people who get to decide whether something that was like a little blip or a little strange flaw in a record is actually a flaw after all and should be taken out they're the ones who decide whether something whether or not it was cool should stay there regardless of what the intentions are regardless of how it sounded based on like how how are we going to convey this message how are we going to convey this person's vision or just this person um through this project and it's an intensely stressful process you know you get a sense too from the article that have a definitely you know especially when she talks about how mixing is like so much for her because she comes from the mastering standpoint and so adding the mixing responsibilities while also being a mastering engineer is like this constant this huge task where there's so many questions circulating in her head so it's just like it's 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 incredibly impressive how many great projects she's come away from saying like i worked on this and how many of those seem to be coming on the horizon as her career continues it's a very exciting thing to look on and it is also a really great job on the part of allison hussey to convey these stresses and these raw things and these little asides while still making it ultimately a piece that showcases an incredibly dedicated and incredibly competent professional um, yeah. and also a visionary artist. Yeah. I, and I, I want to um, talk again, uh, kind of, of what the value in, in Hussey keeping the piece uh, kind of condensed, but still feeling holistic at the same time, because what that allows you to do as a reader and wanting to come back to, uh, people's work is like, you know, leaving it as much to be the expression of the artist that you're talking to, but also not giving too much so that it doesn't like you've given too much to where the reader is like, okay, I've gotten all I need to know about this because the, this piece, especially with like the difference between mixing and mastering, this was not said explicitly in the piece, but like right after I was done reading it, because of that kind of towards the end last answer of how do you use your mixing and mastering skills differently and because Hussey had set it up with this kind of like you know view of the the communication between people being so necessary and kind of crafting thinking of music as a person and crafting the music like that uh through that answer and what was included um in this kind of condensed version it made me realize that like the purpose in the viewpoint of cadre is something at least to me and to i could like then put it in my own context was like mixing is really about like the heart centered core and character character is a word that was used of of the music itself like how that the music mixing it is like about finding that core of a a human and then putting it there put together but then mastering in the more technical elements is not totally separated from that but it's really like 
rather than the heart and finding the core character. It's about the aesthetic of the person and how you want to present yourself. So it's like, so you get all of these different things about like talking to them about their influences and what specifically about those influences sounds that they want. And then when you get to the actual mastering, it's literally like styling a person for them so they can be presented to the world how they want to be presented. Um, so I think with, you know, keeping the interview concise, it made it so my imagination could connect the dots for how I could view the difference between mixing, mixing and mastering as it was presented by Kadri. If I hope that makes sense, but I think, no, I think that's did. real, a real, uh, you know, that, that shows a lot of skill in journalism to be able to spur new thoughts within your reading audience. So, yeah. It was great. Um, I, w I definitely wanted to like also, cause similar to what me was saying, like as a condensed piece, it, but also it was like, it had like a lot of meat to it, if, if that makes any sense. Like it was like a lot of like gems, not only like from the quotes uh, she got from Kadri, but also like what she was able to weave, weave in there as well. Like there are like three quotes, I want to say like one from Hussey her, uh, herself and then two she got out of like um, Kadri. Um, but once again, super smooth read. So it was like, and I actually quite enjoyed it during the time. But um, it's how they start that second paragraph. It's like, in this room, Kadri is a therapist and a translator, a problem solver, and a highly skilled technician. Once again, just like, I was like, oh, that was like so, such a really good like sentence to start that with. And then the two quotes that I, once again, because I think this is like a very humanist piece, um, is the two quotes from Kadri saying, um, when discussing um, the, how she... How, how she bridges the gap between the music and the artist that she's trying to do is, but ultimately, what is music? It's about relationships. It's about how we connect with each other culturally. Through that, you have to be able to interface with people. Once again, bringing that very humanist thing to her. And then lastly, once again, separating that mixing and mastering part. With mixing, you're digging deep. You're not just sonically tilting things. You are actually creating the character of the song. And once again, I, I was like, God, I was like, these are like some, this is some meat, man. I am like eating this stuff up. It, it was fantastic. Well, that just about concludes today's audio piece, an intertextual commentary on the similarities between three music journalists commentating on contemporaries, creating more successful and better pieces than them, and Will Smith's <laughs> Lost <laughs> and Found, featuring I Wish I Made That track number eight from 2005 hey. uh today's pieces were will smith's lost and found train records uh by todd in the shadows a new video essay on youtube there's also okay player pj morton's watch the sun is a full circle moment by jelani turner williams and lastly we have pitchforks meet hebokadri mastering engineer to the indie stars by allison hussey so if you guys want to have your articles featured on here, whether you've written them or your friend wrote them or your mom wrote them or just somebody wrote them that you thought was really cool, we are always looking to support independent writers' work, so feel free to share it. Make sure you rate and review on whatever applications you're listening to us on. And most of all, thank you so much for listening. I'm Elliot. I've got the venerable Mickey with me. I've got the great Tyler. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Sorry. And Thanks have a for great listening. One. Peace. It's been a great Peace podcast. out. Peace See out. You.
episode of Insurgent Source featured Tyler Jones, Mickey Hellerback, and Elliot Sang of the Central Source Collective Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Barsley. Thanks to Chill Records for being to use. This has been the Central Source Fifth End Podcast Network production. Links for Barsley, Chill Records, Central Source Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.